Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. Let's go into today's talk, which the next few weeks, that's our fall program, we'll be focusing on Paul John Roach's book, Unity and World Religions. And it's an incredible book because it really puts in perspective how versatile unity teachings are in comparison to the different religions. The reality is that most of us come from different religions, different upbringings. We have actually quite a rich community, not just Christians, but also some who practice Buddhism, others who come from a completely different background, maybe even agnostic or atheistic in any way. And so it's incredible to take this opportunity to study how does unity compare to Christianity. And today, we're going to look at the first chapter, Unity and Christianity, but also at the introduction. And I hope those of you who have already bought the book and are following along, um, that you have read the introduction, because the introduction has some rich information on some of the background of what unity is. And I'm only going to get into just a few things of those introduction and um, first chapter today, so you will still have to read it by yourself, okay? So you still need to do the work. And then we have after service, as Queen announced, at 1245 in the Peace Chapel, which is also in this direction toward the Fellowship Hall, we have two lovely um, individuals. May I ask you to stand up real quick? Pamela Seibert and, and Thane Rooney. They will co-chair these book study, which means that you can then go in and talk about this even in greater depth. And then we have Jennifer here too. Jennifer, would you mind getting up? Jennifer does the Zoom call on Monday evenings, okay? So you get to see him now, so you're not, you're not going to be afraid to join now, okay? <laughs> Wonderful. So, introduction. Um, in the introduction, Paul gives a lot of information, and, and in, in every chapter, he shares a lot about his story. And I'm going to leave this up to you to read, because I want you to experience Paul not through me, but through his own words. But I'm going to focus a little bit more um, on the development of new thought. A lot of people don't know that unity is actually part of a, a greater movement. We call it the new thought movement. Some call it even a religion. Some say New thought is its own religion, a late 18th century religion, or 19th century religion. I always get confused in English about that. 1800s, that works, right? So here is an, a brief overview of some of the major contributors to new thought. And when we zoom in a little bit, 
you might see it, it's a purple frame. You see in the top left where it starts with the teachings of Jesus, and then it goes down to Phineas Quimby, who was a metaphysical healer, not so much actually interested in God or religion at all, but he was very interested in the metaphysical healing practice, using mind, using heart to heal us physically. And so he is also considered the father of new thought. And then from there, you go down to Mary Baker Eddy, who was a patient initially of his, who had some ailments and wanted to learn more about metaphysical healing. And then Mary Baker Eddy moved on and took the teachings of Jesus and then eventually uh, copyrighted the name Christian Science or Christian Scientists, and then that was her thing. She was also one of the major movements, belongs to New Thought. And you might know Christian Science as they're probably famous sometimes even in movies or shows mention those who don't believe in doctors, right? Who don't go to doctors or something because they believe in their own spiritual metaphysical healing, which is not necessarily the reality, but that's really where it all started. And then Mary Baker Eddy, if you go to the right, there is the teacher of all teachers. That's how she's known, Emma Curtis Hopkins. She worked under Mary Baker Eddy, but then split off from her. They had some disagreement. And then she started teaching like pretty much everyone in New Thought. That's how she is considered the teacher of all teachers, including our co-founders, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, Myrtle or Charles Fillmore, and also Emily Cady, who's one of the major contributors to our movement in the very early um, ages. Now, if you go to the right in blue, then you see we have Buddhism and Hinduism on the right. But we also have Plato, and we have a spiritual philosopher and scientist called Immanuel Swedenborg. And then we have Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's kind of like the representation of transcendentalist. And then that goes all the way down to Ernest Holmes and Emmett Fox. Ernest Holmes, founder of Church of Religious Science or Religious Science or Center for Spiritual Living, they're now called. That's all new thought. We're all, in a way, related. And then when you go all the way to the bottom, so you see on the left we have Christian science, and then unity, and on the right we have divine science, religious science, or CSL, Center for Spiritual Living, and Unitarian Universalist Church. So if you ever heard of any of those terms, we're all related. We all believe, to a certain degree, which is why I'm actually splitting those colors. We're really not separated. What we all have in common in New Thought is that we believe there is something really important about Jesus Christ's teachings, but we're also incorporating a lot of other religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, because we believe their approach, the Eastern approach, has value as well. So we're not really separating as it looks like here. We're all combining it. And that's really important to know as you go into the study of this book, that we're all coming together. And Paul really 
through his own example makes, uh, really does a good job in explaining how his own personal journey brought him to become a minister in unity. And then here we have um, just some faces. You may have seen some of that, some of the major players. So you get to see some of those faces. Of course, Charles and Myrtle at the bottom there, Emily Cady, and so on. Mentioned those. And then moving on from there, this has not yet started. You get to ask yourself, well, how did, get, did Unity get started? And it was really inspired by a doctor who gave a, a lecture. Uh, his name was E.B. Weeks. And he said this. He said, I'm a child of God, and therefore I do not inherit sickness. And that is such a core belief in Unity, that we are a child of God, that we are divine, and it's impossible for us to inherit sickness because of that, which is kind of a strange concept, right? Because who hasn't been sick, even with the snivels, once in a while, right? So that's kind of the, the paradox in a way that we have to deal with. We're also learning what does metaphysical healing mean. But this is really what inspired Myrtle Fillmore. Myrtle Fillmore is the single most important person when it comes to how unity got started because Charles couldn't care less about religion. He couldn't care less about prayer. He had no interest. He was in real estate. He wanted to make money and live with his wife and his, you know, his children. He, they, they both didn't want to, definitely didn't want to have a church, right? That was the last thing that was on their mind. But it was Myrtle who got so inspired. She was, according to legend, she was really sick. Um, he had, she had tuberculosis, and they basically told her she had another few months to live. And when she heard this, she started to pray. But not like we pray nowadays. You know, we have like a boo-boo somewhere, and then we pray once, and then we hope it goes away. No, no, she prayed for two years, right? She used the power of prayer for two years, telling herself this, it's impossible for me to be sick. So she prayed with herself into the consciousness that all she can be is in perfect health. And after two years, again, I always say, according to legend, she healed herself from that. And because of that, Charles got interested. He said, hmm, wait a minute. Maybe there is something to prayer. Maybe there is something to metaphysical healing. Maybe there is something in religions that we can use in order to better our lives. Not only just for physical healing, but healing in a wide range of things. Healing in terms of prosperity, abundance, healings in relationships, healings of love and compassion. So then, what are the major things that we have in unity that we contribute in a way by looking at all the different religions? We have affirmative prayer, which is really what Myrtle Fillmore did. She affirmatively prayed. She didn't ask. She didn't beg. She didn't supplicate nothing. She, she, she claimed her own divinity. She claimed her perfect health and wholeness until she was healed. That's affirmative prayer. She used metaphysics. She used the metaphysical healing practices from Quimby and from Emma Curtis Hopkins, all the other ones that we 
came before her to understand how we can use our mind and heart to heal physically. And she used the five principles. Back then, the five principles weren't around. It was actually her granddaughter who wrote essentially the five principles. But they were taught even though they weren't called five principles. So affirmative prayer, what is it? In affirmative prayer, we affirm what we believe, as in having faith, that what we believe is already a reality. It's very different, isn't it? Like, I remember when I grew up at home, my mom taught me how to pray. My dad wasn't into prayer at all. He was a Protestant, not practicing. My mom was a practicing Catholic. And she taught me how to pray. And it all began with, dear God, please do this and do that, right? None of that in affirmative prayer. In affirmative prayer, we recognize what our belief is, who and what we already are, and then we affirm that, we claim that, we claim the divinity, we claim perfect health and wholeness. We say, yes, I am already a child of God, and yes, I do not inherit sickness, and therefore I'm already healed in my mind and in my heart, right? The other thing is we claim what we desire. If we have pure desires, desires to be loved, desires to have kind and loving and compassionate relationships, desires to have enough in our lives so we don't have to go hungry. When we have those pure, pure desires, we claim that those desires are pure and true, and therefore they already are in reality in our mind at first, our heart at first, and then as we start acting, it'll eventually come into manifestation. What we never do, we never beg. And we don't supplicate. Huge difference, right? And sometimes very uncomfortable, too. If you've grown up all your lives asking God to do stuff for you, and all of a sudden, we're basically telling you, no, no, that's not how this works. It can be a little bit strange, right? So it takes a little bit time. And this is not how to convince you to do anything else that you're already doing. You know, Paul, a couple of weeks ago, when he was in the World Day of Prayer, interviewed by the Vice President of Silent Unity, he said, all prayer is precious. So don't go home and say, oh, my prayer is not good enough. I stopped praying. Please don't do that. Continue praying, but maybe remain open, and maybe there is something else for you to learn and to grow into. Metaphysics. What does metaphysics mean? It's a strange word, sometimes a scary word for people, but really it means beyond the physical. Anything metaphysics is beyond what we see, in a sense. Metaphysical healing is using mind and heart, thought and feeling, to recover our true nature. We're actually not using it to heal. We're using it to recover, or to resurrect what already is. Because in faith, in mind, we claim that we already are whole. We're not healing what is wrong, but we're recovering what already is. Okay? Very different approach. And then metaphysical interpretation, that's basically beyond the literal. Many in Christianity, for example, or, uh, do a Bible interpretation in a very literal sense. 
metaphysical interpretation means we're going beyond the literal and we apply it to our daily lives. We find out what those stories mean to us right now. And then Unity's five principles, and here's a test for you. Who was here two weeks ago? A few of you, okay, test is coming up. Oompa, right? What does Oompa mean? One power, one presence, yeah, not bad. And then P, what's the P? Prayer, yeah, yeah. M, oh, M, I forgot M. What does M mean? Mind, right? Mind and heart. It's just like the beginning. And then A? Action. Action, yeah. So we have just omnipresence, which is there is only one God, oneness. We are that, right? Mind, action, prayer, meditation, etc. And then action. Simple, right? And then what are you is a question that uh, Paul asks in the introduction. And I just love this quote. And to, to just give you some, some background, he writes, you know, Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? Jesus didn't call himself Christian, nor did his followers. That came much, much later. Back then, it's believed that his movement was called the way. And I love this comparison here. The way, like the Tao, is hard to, to define, but it is resonant and instructive. It is an attitude to live as well as determination, a, a determination to commit to a great mystery. What are you? What are we? It's a mystery. A mystery that we get to wake up to every morning and every moment in our lives. And if you know the Tao, then you'll see that there is a connection there. There is some form of relationship that it's sometimes hard to define exactly who and what we are because we are this mystery and yet we all have this essence from which we all come. So now let's go into unity of Christianity. On page two, Paul writes, at the heart of each denomination or theology is the fundamental question, who is Jesus Christ and what does he call us to do? If you're a Christian or if you grew up Christian, Jesus Christ is in the very center of that question, isn't it? Who was he and what are we supposed to do? He's then, and he does this in every chapter, going through every principle. So we're going through every principle and look through every principle through that lens at Christianity and unity. So principle one, we all know this because we say it every Sunday, there's only one presence and one power in our lives and in the universe, God, goodness, omnipotence. He writes it a little bit different in the book, so I would encourage you to read it that. It's a little bit, um, I think, a little bit closer to practicality. I love that. So, and then he compares Christianity to unity. Where, where is the difference? One major difference is how we approach God. In Christianity, not all Christian denominations, but many do approach God as Father. It's a Father God. 
the concept of Mother God is hardly ever seen or practiced or mentioned. It is there even in Christianity. But in unity, we are much closer to actually looking at God through both the mother and the father principle, the feminine and the masculine. Some of us pray Father, Mother, God, Mother, Father, God, right? But even that will be too restrictive. In unity, we believe that cannot even be the definition. God cannot be, be defined in such a way. And Charles Fillmore says that both mother-father principles are important. We cannot remove one and leave the other. Both have to be there. The other thing in Christianity that we often notice is there's, a, there's often a lot of power given to evil or Satan, right? Ever heard that? The devil made me do this, right? Flip Wilson, remember that one, okay? Often used as, a, as an excuse or also, well, you know, I'm, I'm evil also as a, as a judgment, as a severe judgment to ourselves. I'm not a good person. Uh, so in unity, we don't believe in that kind of reality. We don't give anyone but God the ultimate power. There's only one presence and one power. Sometimes it feels in Christianity, evil and Satan almost has as much power as God, doesn't it? But from a unity perspective, evil is just an outcome of the same goodness, the same God. It just went really, really bad. But the good thing is when we see it that way, we can change it. Principle two, we are God expressing such inherent goodness. In Christianity, we often see a separation. We cannot fathom even the idea that we can be one with God. God is always separate. God is always bigger. God is always better. And we are this small little thing, right? Very common in Christian thought. Also in Christianity, we are the fallen ones. We are sinners. We have to redeem ourselves in order to be whole. Unity takes a completely different approach. We believe in oneness with God, Christ consciousness. And we remember our true nature instead of looking at ourselves as fallen. Very key. Rather than seeing ourselves as broken, we see ourselves as whole. We may still have to wake up to the idea that we are whole, but we're not affirming that we are broken. Most importantly, in Christianity, only those who redeem themselves will end up in heaven. Ever heard that? Right? Everyone else, where do we go? To hell, right? Doesn't make any sense in unity. In unity, we do not believe in heaven or hell as places that we go to in some future time. It's just a state of consciousness or a state of mind that we are in, actually, in every moment. Right now, you're either in a state of heaven or in a state of hell. If right now you're thinking, all you're thinking about is how the world is such an awful place and how you will never get better and all that, you're actually more in the hell state of mind. But if you're sitting and say, oh, that sounds really interesting. I can actually do this. Maybe I can be more loving. Maybe I can tell myself you're getting closer and closer to the heaven state of mind. Very different points of views. 
Principle three, our way of thinking shapes how we experience life. And here is where Paul mentions in the introduction this verse, but I think it's, he mentions it again in this um, principle three, the mind action part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. It's the renewing, the resurrection of the mind that we believe is possible for all of us. Even those of us who believe we are doomed, those of us who believe we have committed too great of a sin to ever be recovered, to ever be redeemed, even those in unity believe can be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And I like to always add heart as well. Philippians 2.5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's from Paul writing to the Philippians saying, hey, we're not separate from Jesus Christ. We can exactly do what he did. We don't have to wait for anyone else. We don't have to go back, I don't know how many thousands or hundreds of years. We can do this right now. We can be in that same mind. And then Paul writes, for unity, Jesus, every healing miracle and teaching is a resurrection experience through physical demonstration and spoken message. He leads us from limitation to limitless. He is our way shore. He is giving us an example, not to do exactly as he did. Not everyone needs to walk on water. You know, you know how crazy the oceans would look like if we all walked on water, <laughs> right? But metaphysically, we are all walking on water, right? We're all capable of going through a storm and rising above the water and just be calm even though the storm is surrounding us. We can do this. And we have a good example in Jesus Christ for us to do that. And so in comparison, repentance, asking for forgiveness, more of a Christian thing, moral and spiritual reassessment. That's kind of like the moral journey that we go through in Christianity, in unity, he uses the word metanoia, which means, it's from Greek, it means changing one's mind. So we have that mind change. And forgiveness is done differently too. Forgiveness is the letting go of the false to realize what is actually true. It's not such a hard thing to do. And I'm thinking in the next chapter about Judaism, we will learn a little bit more about that. The Jews actually look at forgiveness very similarly than we do in unity. It's not such a thing that's hard to do. We can forgive quite easily by just letting go of the stuff that's no longer true for us. And then finally, remembering our true nature. That's the key, okay? So there's no real belief in unity of the ultimate sin or that we have been born in sin or that we have to make up for someone else's sin, for Adam and Eve's sin, for the rest of our lives, we believe that we just have to remember our true nature. I am a child of God, and I do not inherit sickness. It's all we need to remember. Change is externalized in Christianity often. We look at change on the outside. 
We often ask God to do the change so we can sit in the couch and be a spiritual couch potato, right? And, and in unity, it's more internalized. It's independent from outside things. Not completely, of course. We always have friends and family that help us and inspirational things. But there is a very different approach. Rather than looking outside, we look first inside, and then we harmonize. Principle four is all about the tools we use. He mentions be still and know, which is in silent unity. First we be still and then we know. Strive first for the kingdom of God from Matthew. We first look at God before we do anything else. That's the instruction. But whenever we pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and so on. Another Matthew quote that's really about, don't worry about the prayer looking in any way, which is why I loved when Paul said, all prayer is precious. Don't worry about your minister telling you how to pray. Don't worry about, you know, standing in front of everyone and be a big prayer person. That's not what's important. It's going within, shut the door, and pray in secret, it's your personal prayer. Yes, we teach a certain way. Yes, some people who pray with others are taught a certain way, but our personal prayer is for us, period. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. There's Paul again. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. So the, using the tools is important. Using them every day, every moment in our lives and be grateful for it. Such an important thing. And then Charles Fillmore from Revealing Word, prayer is the most highly accelerated mind action known. Think for a moment if every thought you have will be a prayer. How would this world change if every thought you have is a true prayer, a thought of affirmation, a thought that we are all aspects, essences of the same goodness, the same God, the same universe? How would the world change? What if we had the ability to change a thought like, the nagging judgment thoughts that we have about others and ourselves, how, how would the world look like if we had the ability to change that? And guess what? We have the ability to do so. Every one of us. If we can think, we can change the thought. If we can feel, we can change the feeling. And that's at the core. Pray for someone, something, asking for what is not, that's Traditional prayer, unity, again, affirmative prayer, pray with someone, with an experience from what already is. We're always imagine the highest. If you have a prayer chaplain, I think, Jennifer, you're here today, so Jennifer is going to be here after the service. You know, go and try it out. You know, if you're used to traditional prayer, you know, I need more money and I need a better husband, or no, I shouldn't say that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I need... This needs to change and that, you know, dear God, please do that. You can actually do this. You can tell Jennifer exactly that. And Jennifer will then gently take you 
more into the affirmative experience that you are deserving of perfect love. That yes, there is a relationship there because you are love itself expressing, right? You are part of an abundant world. You're opening your eyes to what already is. It's a very different way of reaching into our hearts and minds. And finally, the last principle, principle to action. In Christianity, again, not all denominations, but some, it's often divisive. Paul mentions, you know, wars and inquisitions and all the darkness and all that. But often in Christianity, in some Christianity, if you're not a Christian, if you don't, if you, don't you know, put your heart into Jesus and all that, you're not a Christian, right? Ever heard that? Okay. And then in unity, it's a little bit different. It's, we, we aim to unify. And I'm saying aiming because we're not perfect at it all the time. But we're aiming to unify and harmonize among all trying to be accepting to all beliefs and yet have our own teachings to give. All right, almost there for meditation because we need a break. It's a lot of material to cover, right? So is unity Christian? Short answer is we don't know. <laughs> Actually, that's not the true answer. Within unity, I start on the right here. Within unity, we are in disagreement with that. Some would say, and Paul says, if we, if we look at the Philmorian teachings, it's a resounding yes, yes, we are Christian. We're just looking at Christianity in a different way. But if you, if you listen to some of the other unity ministers, they would say, hey, we're absolutely not Christian. We are new thought. We are part of the new thought religion. We leave Christianity. And I think it's a part of interpretation, I believe. Because if I interpret Christianity as this very um, traditional evangelistic approach, then yes, unity doesn't seem like Christian at all. But then there's other denominations that are far closer to unity than um, we sometimes think. And then maybe we are Christian. So that's something for you to, to look at. And on the Christianity thing, I've happened to experience both. I've had people tell me when I share just a little bit about unity and said, yeah, you're not Christian <laughs> at all. And, uh, and then some others are more accepting and said, yeah, that sounds like you're just taking a different approach, but you're still looking at Jesus as the wave shore. This is really a personal question that I think every one of us can answer depending. Sin and suffering, You know, sin, I talked about this before, we need to repent, original sin, not something in unity. Sin is just like the Jews are looking at sin. Um, we just made a mistake, okay? What do we do when we made the mistake most of the time? Hopefully, we're not beating ourselves up for the next three weeks, right? We're just moving on and do better next time. That's how we approach sin in unity. And ways to approach God I'll leave this up to you to leave a little bit closer because I'm going way over time. It's just a way to approach God either from a positivity, via positive way, fullness, completeness, God is love, goodness, and all that, or from via negativa, which doesn't mean negative, so to speak. God is beyond definition. God is 
neither light or dark. God is neither present nor absent, right? Different ways of approaching, again, an opportunity for you to read the book and kind of consider what is God for you. I'm leaving you with this before we move into meditation because I think that's probably, that's my pearl that I found in those first few pages. Unity is like a swimming pool with a deep and shallow end. If we are content with the shallows, the simplistic version of truth, we avoid the difficult questions and the challenge to immerse and swim. But we also fail to see and experience the true significance of the message. The idea that we are in a pool that has both a deep and a shallow end, I like that because sometimes we are able to go into the deep end and we're able to swim, and sometimes we are just not. Sometimes we need the safety of the shallow end. I love this analogy, and I hope it resonates with you as well as you study this further. So this has been a very quick overview. So it's only a few pages to read, and yet there's a lot to discover, and I hope you will enjoy. So let us now have a few moments of meditation together. Take a moment and allow yourself to settle into that beingness that you may experience beyond your physical. Allow yourself to take every breath as an opportunity to sink a little bit more deeply. And if you like the analogy of the swimming pool, maybe you start out on the shallow end and gradually move toward the deep end and without any fear and resistance just let go Remember that we already are what we seek to be. We are a perfect expression of God, a perfect expression of nature, the universe, of allness, of the holy, of spirit. 
And because we are together, this perfect expression, individually and as a community, what we need to do is remember, remember that. So there's nothing to fix. Nothing is really broken. Yes, we may make mistakes or don't see it rightly yet. But we are still whole. I am a child of God and I do not inherit sickness. You can say this quietly in your mind and bring it into your heart. I am a child of God and I do not inherit sickness. Yes, suffering is real. We have bad moments, tragedy, sadness. But we also have joy and opportunity, love, never-ending love. So it's in our hands to choose, to choose right now. To allow that child of God to come forward and play. To remember that at the core of our being there is only love and kindness and to know that we have the ability to return to that at will at all times. So let us take into a moment of silence allowing us to resonate with the peace that passes all understanding.
together, let us give thanks to the teachings of all religions and all spirituality. Let us give thanks for our willingness to join and participate in our own growth. In that, we give thanks and say thank you, and so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org. 